Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 253, recorded June 16, 2010, Q&A number 94. Security Now is brought to you by Ford and voice-activated SYNC, featuring true hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist, and more. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. And by the new Carbonite Pro. It's simple, secure, and affordable online backup for your small business. For a free trial and to learn more, visit CarbonitePro.com. And by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to Squarespace.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all of your security needs. I'm Leo Laporte with our security guru, Mr. Steve Gibson of the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com. Hey, Steve. And you have... You have physically, uh, viscerally demonstrated the first news item for us to discuss. Yes, we're starting getting, 45 minutes late. <laughs> both By getting both of your Macs updated with the latest fixes from <laughs> Apple. Okay, just a tip for those of you who are in broadcasting. Probably not a good idea to update your operating system right before you want to start a show. Yeah, not in the case of a 300-plus megabyte download that then has to replace a ton of files. and. Well, that was and the interesting thing. It, it, the download happened like that. It was took a very long, little time to download. It was the, it was the uh, reboot. Yeah. And I, that makes sense. It's doing a lot of work behind the uh, blue screen there. So we have Security Now, episode 253, Q&A number 94. Wow, hard to believe. Sweet. Ten great yeah. questions from you, our audience. Also, of course, security update news, as uh, we kind of hinted at. Another busy week in the disaster of this security industry. Leo. <laughs> just, oh, my goodness. But, more, but... <laughs> more AT&T hijinks. We've got a zero-day vulnerability from Microsoft. Oh, We've got Lord. Adobe still squirming around. All kinds of stuff. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, yeah. dear. Oh, dear. Well, let's get to that in a second. I do want to thank... Uh, you know, we just came back from the uh, E3 electronic. We were down your way. We were at the L.A. Convention Center. I should have stopped in. Uh, we were at the uh, E3 conference, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, doing live coverage. In fact, uh, I would encourage you, if you're interested, to see the E3 highlights episodes that we're putting up on the Twit Live specials feed. Uh, you can see more uh, of that by going to uh, twit.tv. Uh, or you can uh, subscribe on iTunes and other places. Actually, if you go to twit.tv, you'll see... A subscription link um, on twit.tv. Let me see what the what the direct URL is for our Twit specials. Twit live specials. It's well easy to remember. Twit.tv slash specials, and uh, you can see all of our uh, all of our uh, most recent specials soon. I think they're not quite up yet from E3. We'd want to thank the folks at Ford for making that possible. Ford, of course, the creators of the incredible Ford Sync. 
of which I am, as you probably know by now, a diehard fan. I got my Ford Sync automobile last year. I bought a beautiful, I mean, a beautiful uh, 2010 Mustang, which I'm still somewhat in love with. And uh, this uh, this Mustang, this Sync thing is truly, truly incredible. Um, it's, it is true hands-free calling. And I mean, even with phones that have no, are notorious for problems with hands-free calling, like the, the Android, um, works incredibly well with this. You know, if you try a Bluetooth headset with an Android phone, often you can't just press the button and call. Uh, you can with a sync. You never take your hands off the wheel, your eyes off the road. You, uh, you press, there's a little button on the wheel. You press the button. It says, what would you like to do? You say, phone. It, it, it beeps at you, and you say, uh, dial Steve Gibson at home. And the recognition is incredible. It calls out. It's got turn-by-turn directions, which is incredible. And In fact, it'll even reroute you if the traffic's bad. It knows about traffic. Um, incredibly useful things like 911 assist. It, on some phones, it reads you the text messages. Music search. I can say, and I do this all the time, I say, because um, I'm listening to my uh, the book, the girl with the uh, dragon tattoo. So I'll say, you know, I'll press the button and say sync. It says beep, which is its way of saying yes. And I say, play the girl with the dragon tattoo. Boom, starts playing. I mean, it's incredible. Take a look at the Ford voice-activated sync featuring true hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist, and more at your Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury dealers. For more details, visit syncmyridepodcast.com. And when you're in... The area. Come visit me, and I'll give you a ride in the pony car, and I'll show you how well sync works. I just did that with Tom Merritt, and uh, it was fun. We took a ride in the country, at, at, at uh, absolutely observing all legal speed limits, and uh, and I and I showed him how easy it is to keep your hands on the wheel and your eyes on the road with Ford Sync. And do watch those specials brought to you by Ford Sync at twit.tv/specials. All right, so tell me about this update, Steve. What, have, what did I just do? So, By the I way, actually, for those of you not watching at home, and you can watch video of this now, Steve, I just noticed you're wearing your hacker shirt. I am. Yep. I figured <laughs> after the portable dog killer episode, I'm entitled to, to be a hacker. And I actually have a little story from, some, from a witness, actually a, a secondhand witness to that uh, that I found in the mailbag today that I thought our listeners would get a kick out of. Um, I wish today we had... More security updates than we do. We need more. <laughs> we do. We're hanging out here at the yeah, moment. Yeah. Um, what we did get was a relatively major update for the Mac OS, uh, OS X. Um, I'm not sure what cat this is. You have, you and I are running different cats. I have I'm, I'm on Leopard. You're snow on Snow? Or other. You're on Snow Leopard? Yeah. Snow Leopard. And uh, so we're the Snow Leopard folks are up to... Version ten point six point four, um, your ten point five point something. I guess I can't remember. If, Let me look real quick because I didn't upgrade to Snow Leopard because uh, I didn't see any reason to, mm-hmm. and it did cause compatibility issues with things like our audio drivers. Ten five eight if you're on Leopard. Okay, ten point five point eight, and that's uh, for both of us a, a several hundred meg. Two, download mine was three something wow 224 on mine i think must three but i already had safari and i I presume it's smart enough to look and say oh you've got safari 5 we won't download that in my case i had safari 5 as well and it, so it was 330 or i think it was 313 wow. megs but so it was 23 security fixes 
uh, Safari 5 if you didn't already have it. And then just a sort of a handbag, handful, random sampling of various random bug fixes. Not Nothing really significant there. But, you know, everyone who's got Macs ought to update because there were 23 security fixes, which I will not drag everyone through a, an enumeration of just all kinds of good stuff that we want. Um, the reason I wish we had more update news is that uh, Adobe has now fixed the Flash problem that we have talked about, but declared that they will not be fixing the PDF vector for this until the end of the month. So we have a an actively exploited in the wild, serious, known to the hackers, PDF vulnerability, which we're going to get no cure for for two weeks. It is possible to do what we talked about last week, which is to delete or rename this DLL um, in uh, in Windows systems, which is actually what the it's the Flash player that Reader brings along, and I'm blanking on the name Auth something dot DLL. I I blogged about it on my steve.grc.com blog. I'll go look. I'll go look. And um, so renaming that uh, is is probably a good thing to do. No, knowing now that Adobe has formally declared that they're not going to have a fix for us uh, for another two weeks. So, um, so there's that. Um, and, and Leo will get the name I'm looking, here. For I'm me. looking right here on your on site, steve.grc.com. A-U-T-H-P-L-A-Y, offplay.dll. Play, yes, offplay.dll. I'm recommending that you search your system for that and just change it to offplay.xxx, for example, which will prevent it from being found. If by chance you then opened a PDF that had Flash in it, and I don't know no, 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 why a PDF would have a Flash in it, but the point is that Flash is, or PDFs are Flash enabled by default, and disabling the Flash feature, which is available in the UI, doesn't prevent this from being a problem. So go figure that. But but renaming this offplay.dll to .xxx will, if you were to open a PDF with this that was trying to invoke Flash, would just cause it not to function. It, it would, you know, the, 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 the PDF itself would fail to open. It's like, okay... Probably that's a good thing because it was more than likely malicious. So you could wait for two weeks. Uh, be careful about what PDFs you open or just uh, rename this authplay.dll in order to be safe in the meantime. Then when when Adobe's fix comes out, it'll just give you a new copy of authplay.dll with at least this known problem fixed. Since we last spoke um, on the podcast... A new vulnerability was revealed. What happened in, in, uh, this is not technically a zero-day vulnerability. I referred to it as such on my blog, and I blogged about it on the 11th, which was when this became known. What happened was, and this is somewhat controversial, uh, a, a Google 
security researcher who claims that he was not doing this under the auspices of Google, uh, named Tavis Ormandy, who's been known for releasing in a responsible fashion news of other vulnerabilities, informed Microsoft five days before he told the world of a of a vulnerability that he discovered in Windows XP and 2003 help system. So first off, if you're not running XP or 2003 server, you don't have a problem. This is an XP 2003 only vulnerability. So Tavis notified Microsoft on the weekend, actually, like on a Saturday, and and then gave them five days notice. And what that unfortunately did was, I mean, even if Microsoft had been able to respond instantly, and we know that they are substantial non-instantaneous responders, <laughs> sometimes taking as much as a year to fix things that they know about. But the point is that we just had our second Tuesday of the month of June. So we're now, from this point forward, if Microsoft doesn't do anything out of cycle, waiting a full month. I mean, Tavis couldn't have timed this any worse. And only giving them five days notice, then posting on a well-read security list all the details of the exploit with demonstration code in public caused a lot of controversy. And the problem, of course, is that he says he did this on his own time, not under the auspices of Google, despite the fact that he's a security researcher for Google. Now people are saying that this is like an, you know, Google attacking Microsoft and not giving Microsoft sufficient notice, not doing the the whole responsible disclosure dance where the researcher waits until the problem has been patched before going public with it and so forth. So that hasn't happened. What we have now since then, okay, so this was, I blogged about this on the 11th and immediately put up a workaround for, to allow people to protect themselves because I expected that this, this had all the appearance of something that would be jumped on quickly because it was in XP, no patch available. It was um, also trivial to exploit, and he gave a uh, Tavis gave a complete explanation in detail, showing code of what it was he found and how to exploit it with samples. And sure enough, um, we're now recording this on the 16th, and yesterday on the 15th, we began to found we, we began to see this vulnerability being exploited in the wild. So, uh, to all of our listeners. Um, uh, it's my most recent blog posting, so you can go to steve.grc.com. And since then, Microsoft has created one of their quick fix-it button deals. Um, you could also just go directly to support.microsoft.com slash kb slash 2219475. So it's, again support.microsoft.com slash kb slash 
221-9475, which will, and I link to that on steve.grc.com currently, which is the top blog on, on my um, blog, the top posting on my blog, where you can get a link to there. And they'll give you a button that you press to turn this off. What this does is the same thing that my blog posting recommended back on the 11th, which was there's a there's a protocol handler. Something, for example, if you have, if you clicked on a link that said FTP colon slash slash for file transfer protocol or HTTP colon slash slash. Well, in this case, it's HCP colon slash slash, which is a, a URL style invocation of the help center. So it's HCP stands for help center protocol. And it's a bug in that, which is the problem. Well, there are some things in Windows that need that. So disabling this will break some random links in Microsoft's own help system, which they use within Windows to bring up the help center. But better that than being exploited with this vulnerability, which Microsoft may very well not get around to fixing for a month because we just had the second Tuesday of June. I don't know if this is going to raise to the level of them doing an out-of-cycle patch. Um, the problem is that, you know, everyone within the sound of this podcast will be able to fix this. But most people are now relying on Windows Update to keep their Windows current. And so this vulnerability is going to be hanging out there, being actively exploited for maybe as long as a month. I can't, I mean, g- given given Tavis's expose, it's hard to imagine that Microsoft could say they can't have it fixed in four weeks because he laid the whole thing out. And he laid it out for them, in fact, last weekend. So it's like, okay, uh, my sense is this is worth doing. Our listeners ought to protect themselves. But again, only if you're not up on Vista and 7 yet. Only if you're still back on Windows XP. That's the only place where it's a big problem. And looks like it is a big problem. Um, I learned via Twitter from Alejandro, whose Twit handle is microtwit32, that NoScript, the favorite script blocker for Firefox, quietly added support for tab nabbing. We talked about tab nabbing last week or the week before. Remember that that's a, an interesting uh, exploit where pages that you're not viewing currently, for example, in Firefox, can be changed in a way that if you went back to the page, it, would, it could easily fool you to believe that your, you know, your eBay session had timed out or a Google Mail session had timed out or something saying, oh, please re-authenticate. The idea being that the page changes when it's not the, the tab on top, so you're not viewing the page at the time. Don't notice that it changed from something completely different to something that is spoofing one of the services that you are using. It turns out that scripting is powerful enough now to allow a probing of the services you do use so that a sufficiently sophisticated script could figure out what it is that that 
like what what banking site you tend to use and present something convincing on on the tab that you're not viewing. So when you switch back to that, it's like, oh, look, my my banking site says I need to re, to log in again. So what um, our NoScript author did uh, at version one point nine point nine point eight one, and since I looked, I went back and looked through the the update and and feature notes. He quietly added a new option, which is not, it does not surface to the level of the user interface. So it's not a button you can click on the UI. But if you go, if you put into the Firefox browser's URL field about colon config and hit enter, that will take you to a huge page of alphabetically sorted security and UI and every kind of option under the sun that basically governs in great granular detail the way Firefox operates. The the item you're looking for is no script dot forbid BG refresh as in background refresh. So again it's no script dot forbid BG refresh. Now that can have a value of zero, one, two, or three. Zero is no change of behavior at all, no blocking of background page refresh changes. One, which is the default mine had been set to, blocks refreshes on untrusted, unfocused tabs only. Now, trust and untrust is is a you know, relative to no script. That is, have you said that you trust this page like, you know, Amazon.com, for example, or not? The setting of two blocks refreshes on trusted unfocused tabs. I don't know why you would choose that because it doesn't block them on untrusted tabs. But setting three blocks them on both trusted and untrusted tabs. And I changed mine to three because I can't really see a valid reason why, whether I trust a site or not, if I'm not looking at the page, I don't think it needs to change what what I'm not seeing. And in fact, I've noticed that I'm sometimes distracted when I notice a page that I'm not looking at is changing, is like refreshing. You know, some some script timer timed out and it's changing the ads on the page or it's, you know, refreshing the whole page in order to get new content or something. Well, I'd rather not have it do that behind the scenes. So I like the fact that NoScript now lets us prevent any non-focused page from changing itself. Seems like a useful thing to do. So again, in Firefox, about colon config in the URL field, then just, I think, in fact, I'm sure that there is a search feature in that about colon config page. I just scrolled way down because it was, you know, manually because uh, it was alphabetic. So no script dot forbid BG refresh. And it normally is one. So it, it blocks untrusted, unfocused tabs from changing. I changed mine to three to block both trusted and untrusted. I can't see any reason. I can't see any negative side effect from doing that. There is one other option that you'll notice on the immediate succeeding line, which is no script dot forbid BG refresh dot exceptions. And for whatever reason, he has mozilla.org listed there, probably just as an example. 
So what that allows you to do is if there if it turned out there was some site that was having a problem with being able with being unable to refresh itself or if you just wanted specifically to allow specific domains the ability to override that this gives you exceptions to the blocking rule allowing them to behave as if you didn't have any prevention at all. So that's a cool feature in NoScript that we wouldn't know about if I hadn't received this nice twit note from Alejandro, and I so I want to thank him for that. Um, uh, and I think it's uh, useful for our listeners. NoScript is such an amazing tool. This guy's just uh, constantly updating it. Yeah, he's doing a great job. Yeah, yeah. Then in AT, AT&T Doghouse, we talked last <laughs> week about uh, the the mistake that they made by allowing their web service to return the email address given the so-called ICC ID of SIM cards, which are in the uh, Apple, in, in, in this case, the Apple uh, 3G tablet. Well, it turns out that that was sort of the the first problem when people who know GSM took a look or a closer look at this. They realized there was another consequence that had not yet received any attention. There's a another number very much like the ICC ID. This one's called the IMSI. The IMSI is supposed to be secret, whereas the ICC ID is printed on the outside of the SIM card itself. It's you know it's on your receipt when you when you register a phone or buy a phone. The I the ICC ID is not intended to be secret. the The original concept for the IMSI is that there would be a database somewhere such that the ICC ID could be used to to securely query a database which would then return the secret IMSI number when given an ICC ID. It turns out that a number of the cell phone vendors, I know it's AT&T and T-Mobile and and a couple others decided that that was kind of a pain to have to do that so they decided to use a stunningly simple transformation merely a matter of swapping digits around essentially that allows you to calculate the IMSI from the ICC ID meaning that was what was supposed to be in the spec a secure, non-obvious relationship for the sake of security now becomes a matter of getting out a pencil and paper. And from an ICC ID, you can compute the IMSI. So that becomes, I mean, and, and this has been known for a long time, wasn't a big deal. Except that now we have the exposure of this 114,000 ICC IDs, which were really just obtained by guessing what they probably were since they're generally sequential. And so this hacker group that we talked about last week, Goatsy, um, just 
wrote a script in PHP to guess all these ICC IDs using the AT&T server to confirm them and to return the associated email address. Okay, now we know that these... So we have some piece of information about the email address. Generally, from the email address, you can guess who it belongs to, you know, as, as you know, Rahm Emanuel at, at whitehouse.gov. We know who he is yeah. and so forth. And why he was using that address is beyond me. Was he? They, no. I think it was a Gmail address. Uh, don't remember. But yeah. so we have their email addresses. Oftentimes you can tell who they are. Well, now we know that it's very possible to get the IMSI. So what does that give you? The IMSI is this information that is supposed to be secret. And through a formal API that's public because it's universal, it, you're able to query the GSM cellular network to determine the full account name of the owner, their phone number. This is the information we talked about some time ago where you now have the ability to track them as they roam anywhere in the world. That is, you can determine which cell tower their phone is currently associated with. You can retrieve their voicemail. And if you are physically near them, which is now not difficult because you're able to determine which cell tower they're at, it turns out it's possible to intercept their speech and SMS messages. Now, in the case of an iPad, which is not a speech device, it's a data-only device, you know, and there is no voicemail account. They're, you're not going to have speech or SMS, probably, associated with it. Um, so these don't represent such a big problem. So, again, this is, to me, it feels like, yes, a privacy concern, maybe a little bit of a tempest in a teapot because... You know, days ago when this news surfaced, again, there was another whole flurry of, oh, my goodness, everyone's pulling their hair out. I'm thinking, okay, well, if it's unfortunate that the cell companies have associated the ICC ID with the IMSI. Shouldn't, they shouldn't have done that. They did it for simplicity's sake. It should have relied on a secure access to a back-end database so that you couldn't get the IMSI even knowing the ICC ID, because the ICC ID is intended to be not super secure, you'd like to have the IMSI kept secret for all of those reasons I just enumerated. Basically, it's a key into someone's, you know, current cell phone um, behavior at this point. So, anyway, I did want I wanted to cover it. A number of people wrote to say, "Hey, Steve, you know, did you see this? What do you think of it?" My feeling is, yes, that's not good. It's not the end of the world. But, you know, that's what's going on. Yeah, it's good to get that kind of straight because uh, it's sometimes reported as the end of the world. It, it, it too often is. I think by, I mean, and by, by, in some cases, I think people like it to be the end of the world. Right. They're, they're wanting to bash on AT&T. People hate AT&T so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do too. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's still, you know, so I, my feeling is those are the facts People can decide for themselves how they feel about it. Right. Um, there was an interesting story that the register, uh, the, the register.co.uk picked up that I wanted to share with our listeners because it sort of it tells a, a it, it's a it's a, an example of what can happen and it reinforces something that I've talked about before that I just wanted to refresh. So the register story is um, 
about crooks, as they put it, siphoning a rather sobering amount of money, $644,000 from uh, a New York City school district bank account. That's terrible. The New York City uh, Department of Education was, and I'm reading from the register, was defrauded out of more than $644,000 by hackers who targeted an electronic bank account used to manage, quote, petty cash, unquote, expenditures, investigators said. The DOE, the Department of Education's small item payment process account at J.P. Morgan Chase was supposed to be limited to purchases of less than $500. But an oversight by officials allowed electronic transfers of any amount, according to investigators who probed the theft. The crooks were able to perpetuate the scan for more than three years because education officials didn't bother to reconcile account statements on a regular basis. You know, I reconcile my account statements. Why wouldn't, if they're... um, Quote, it is difficult to understand how the DOE accumulated years of account statements reflecting hundreds of thousands of public dollars spent to pay bills but did not review them, unquote. The report, which was written by Special Commissioner of Investigation for the New York City School District, stated a cursory examination would have shown that the charges were not normal school expenses. The individual who headed the theft was Albert Ato, who in April was sentenced to 364 days in federal prison after pleading guilty to bank larceny. He was also ordered to pay more than $275,000 in restitution and be on probation for two years following his release. According to the report, Ato provided the account and routing information to others so that they could, they could use it to pay student loans and invoices for purchases at Home Depot and other retail outlets. In return, Ato demanded cash payments from them. Because DOE officials failed to block the use of electronic transfers, the account was wide open. All that was required was the account number and the bank routing information. So I had mentioned quite a while ago that we were seeing, the the security industry was seeing an increase in the level of this kind of electronic transfer fraud. It's it's some of the vulnerabilities that are opened by by malware that gets on people's machines and is involved in their banking transactions. Um, when I first saw this, I then made sure that it, for my own company that I that things were still in place that I had set up years before, which was to explicitly lock down our accounts against electronic transfer. Um, it turns out that it's a little inconvenient for my operations manager, Sue, who has to physically write a check from one account to the other. But we don't do it that often. And, and I just wanted to share this example with our listeners and, and really encourage them to... To change the defaults, which is what these probably are, on 
accounts that they have that that are relatively static where they're not actively moving money around. You know, the, our banking industry in general is wanting to automate itself. It's wanting us not to come into the bank. They'd rather use ATMs. They'd much rather that we did things online. Well, all of that is convenient for them and it minimizes, you know, their the, the the level of service that they have to provide. But it comes at a substantial expense to to security. So so as a consequence, in general, accounts have these defaults to allowing this kind of fund transfer. Well, this is a perfect instance of real-world security where if you do not actively need that feature, turn it off. And, and one of the problems is that unlike, for example, fraudulent credit card purchases where the credit card company stands behind your use of the card and, you know, you have to sign an affidavit saying, yes, I never purchased, you know, all of this stuff that was not sent to me anyway. It went somewhere else. Um, this is not the case in these kinds of cash transactions. When this cash is transferred off to somewhere else, it's gone. There's no one for you to appeal to. There's no one for you to to get angry with. Your bank says, well, we're sorry, but we were just doing what we were instructed to do. So I just want to make an appeal to our listeners to think about the way their accounts are structured. If they've got more than one, if they've got places where they park money or they park investments or, or that kind of thing, just just in, make sure that your bank is instructed to turn off any of these automation features that you don't actually need, that you're not using. It's It's increasingly risky unfortunately, for these defaults to be on. And so it's, I think, worth taking a moment just to say, make sure you are in agreement with your bank about, you know, what they're allowed to do and what not, what requires physical presence in the bank in order to, to perform. So it, it really is true that there is, uh, you know, uh, uh, convenience versus security. It's a, it's a, it's a balance beam. You, yes. More convenient, less secure, often. Yes, it, it absolutely is. Um, I did receive shortly after uh, last week's podcast a a, a a tweet from a Dan Bowser that I got a chuckle of. He's probably a Mac user or at least or maybe a Linux user. He's certainly not a fan of Windows, and and so I we, we were of course talk as we always do about uh, uh, security patches and so forth. And so I I looked up and and saw this come in. So Dan wrote. Every Windows machine has an unpatchable critical vulnerability. Oh, no. What's that? The power on switch. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, burn. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, And I did run across a fun note from uh, in in my mailbag today uh, while pulling questions for the Q&A from Brad, who, who says, Dear Steve, I work for a sizable organization and I'm charged with using a popular disk wiping utility, KillDisk, which is pretty well named, I think, uh, to erase hard drives in our machines before they are either redeployed or recycled. Glad to know that large companies have such a policy. And he says these old machines and the hard drives in them can be up to eight or more years old. 
on approximately one out of every 15 or so drives. I thought that was an interesting statistic, too. On approximately one out of every 15 or so drives, the wiping utility will hang at a certain point, unable to complete the 10 passes of the drive that we require to satisfactorily dispose of the data. When this happens, we have to spend the time and effort to physically destroy the hard drives. Recently, I decided to try my copy of Spinrite on a drive where the wiping utility had gotten stuck. Spinrite ran at level 2. Dynastat kicked in and resolved the hard drive's issues to the point that when Spinrite had finished, the disk wiping utility was now able to fully run its 10 passes on the drive, saving me the time and trouble of physical destruction and, of course, making the drive usable again. As a result, a purchase of four Spinrite licenses to give us a site license is now planned for when our budget comes up later this year. I first heard of Spinrite on the Rootkit for Dummies book. In, in the Rootkit for Dummies book. There's a book called Rootkit for Dummies? Rootkit for Dummies. <laughs> As a way to restore sectors where the Rootkit NTFS hider lives. Wow. Okay, so, so get this. There's a problem with being unable to install the Rootkit because it insists on going on a spe- on a specific physical sector. Right. And if that physical sector happened to be bad, oh darn, you wouldn't be in- be able to install your rootkit there. Right. So they said, fix "Oh, <laughs> run Spinrite spin <laughs> to fix the sector and you'll be able to install your rootkit." I love it. Not quite how I uh, intended Spinrite to be used uh, when I was designing it, but there you go. You have users in he many says, areas. Out of the stories for Spinrite on Security Now, this was one application of the software I hadn't yet heard of. No kidding. Thank you both for an outstanding product and podcast. Now, and you can't. In fact, if, if it has to be on a specific physical sector, you you wouldn't be able to move it. I mean, Spinrite moves things, right? Spinrite works with the drive to relocate sectors underneath the file system. So if the drive, if Spinrite couldn't recover the data, um, it would would do the best job it could and then tell the drive, swap this out for a good good sector. So one thing I did want to mention to Brad and a tip for people who who might want to use Spinrite like this or who don't care about the data in the sector. Remember, he, he talked about how, how Dynastat kicked in. Right. Dynastat is very patient and in, you, some might say very stubborn. Um, it normally reads 2,000 copies of the sector while it's doing its Dynastat stands for dynamic statistics, where it's analyzing the data that it is able to read, even if the drive won't read the sector. Spinrite's able to read what's there. And so it uses that in order to perform its data recovery. Well, in a case like this, where you, you really don't care what's in the sector, you're not trying to recover the data. You're trying to repair the, the sector without recovering the data. There is a command line option for Spinrite that allows you to dial down or 
frankly, up the strength of Dynastat recovery. It defaults to 100 as in 100%. So you can, you can say Spinrite space slash Dynastat space zero, for example, or one to, to bring it down to 1% of normal strength, which would be 20 reads rather than 2,000 reads or to zero, which says, eh, don't bother recovering this data, just replace it. So in a case like a drive wiping scenario where you're unable to wipe because of a bad sector, you could use Spinrite to fix the drive without recovering the data by running it with Dynastat zero setting, in which case it would just perform the recovery. It would just, it would just, it would repair the sector without recovering the sector's data. Very well, interesting. Cool. Yeah. 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 Always nice. Somebody's asking in the chat room, you should do a show on Spinrite and how it works. At some well, point, it might be. It's a little self. Self-serving. Self-serving, <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, we're going to uh, come back with 10 questions. Got some good ones for y'all. Before we do, I do want to mention our friends at squarespace.com. This is a great place. If you're looking for somewhere, and I, I told Steve about this, but he decided to go somewhere else. Too many buttons for me. Too many buttons. Lot, well, actually, all I wanted was a simple blog, and Squarespace clearly does way more than that. It's very powerful. I, I have to say, I mean, I think it's easy to use. It's not like it's... Uh, it's overwhelming. In fact, why don't you go right now to squarespace.com slash security now. You can take a look at Squarespace. They call it the secret behind exceptional websites. You could try it. You don't even need a credit card for 15 days. Get a sense of what you can do with it immediately. I mean, you press two buttons and you've got a website going, a simple website going. It will, by the way, import and export from movable type WordPress, TypePad, and Blogger. So if you want to put your existing site into it just to see what it looks like, including comments, you can. There's an amazing iPhone app. makes it very easy to blog. Incredible statistics, uh, forms, photo galleries, social media integration. And what I really like is that if, I, if you go to the tour, uh, I'm sorry, not the tour, the examples link at squarespace.com slash security. Now you'll see an example of what sites can look like. And uh, these, are, these are all done with Squarespace and the amazing Squarespace software. So you start with gorgeous templates but then, as you, as you work with Squarespace, you'll see uh, you can customize it completely. If you know CSS, it's unlimited potential. But even if you don't, you're always going to have a site that looks unique, has the great Squarespace software running behind it, not just for a blog, but per, per, per portfolios for photographers and, and a whole lot more. Always got some great uh, uh, Squarespace software running behind it, the great Squarespace servers, so you never go down. Take a look, really take a look at the, uh, at the examples. Un believable what how great squarespace can look how easy it is to use how well it works and now free for 15 days at squarespace.com security now if you decide to set up a squarespace site or move your existing site to squarespace very easy to do so and we're going to give you 10 percent off for the life of your site forever 10 percent off every month if you use the offer code security now squarespace it's where exceptional sites begin just fantastic stuff. Really, really well done. Squarespace.com slash security now. Take a look at it. I think you'll like it. And we do thank them for their support of the Security Now program. All right, Steve, I have some questions if you are in the mood to answer some. Sure, All absolutely. Right. And and also some just good comments from our listeners, some you know feedback. Yeah, you, by the way, you can always uh, submit feedback to Steve at any time by going to 
at grc.com slash security now or grc.com slash feedback, the direct link. Yep. Uh, this is question one and from an automotive engineering listener requesting anonymity. We were talking about that ODB port on the uh, car and how it can be used to reprogram a car. In podcast 251 of Security Now, you read a letter from someone who spoke as if on behalf of an entire industry. Uh, I say he does not. I've been in the industry. He mentions for 15-plus years on the technical side. I have a master's in computer engineering, 21-plus years of professional experience. He said no one ever considers security. He may speak for aftermarket devices. He doesn't speak for car company original devices. On OEM, that is car company design programs, we do study security. Money is spent on independent consultants to analyze security. And vehicle and customer safety are highly appreciated. This is a quick note. I'm at work. But I couldn't let one person's flippant comments destroy an industry. The vehicle hacking that has had press lately was tied to a car with an aftermarket device connected to the OBD2, as Leo mentioned. The takeaway from this is be careful what you add to your vehicle. Know what you've installed, just as you have, you know, careful on what you install into your house or your PC. You agree? Yeah, and I thought that was an important point. I'm, you know, this doesn't let me off the hook. I mean, in terms of like, oh, good, now I'm not going to worry about this because... You know, we know from, you know, five years of this podcast that that security has been a concern during the five-year life of the podcast. Certainly, we've seen it ramp up recently, yet the problems don't go away. The problems persist because our systems, our computer systems are phenomenally complex. And, of course, compa- uh, cars, automobiles are getting phenomenally complex. So... I'm really glad and heartened to hear that the automotive industry understands the problem, is paying attention to it, has analysts, independent consultants looking at all this. That's all good. That's all necessary. Um, the problem is nothing is sufficient. Um, it just That's the nature of this stuff. It's too hard to do. So I'm glad for it, um, but... Um, I'm. I know. I will predict that we will see problems in the future. It's just. It's inevitable. He echoes what I uh, was saying, though. That it, that it, this hack at least requires physical access to the car. So, um, you know, there are a lot of hacks. When you talk about security, if somebody has physical access, they have a lot more they can do than just over the internet. And as of yet, this stuff requires security. Uh, requires physical access. Correct. So, just a point. Correct. Uh, John Hewen with question two in Austin, Texas, wonders why microcode reduces complexity. This is from the last episode where we talked about uh, a risky business. Hey, Steve, great show as always. I'm hoping in the upcoming Q&A you might be able to explain in a bit more detail how having microcode made, gen- made engineers' jobs easier in terms of the number of AND and OR gates required to implement complex instructions. Why is it not the case that having a computer within a computer just meant that those AND and OR gates had to be implemented in the microcode area in order to run those instructions and manage the main area? Or if microcode allows those types of instructions to be executed in a fundamentally different way that doesn't require those AND and OR gates, why can't the rest of the instruction set be implemented that way? Keep up the great work. So he's saying really when you you were saying that one of the things that came up was that uh, they were building into the silicon these fancy instructions like linked lists so they came up with microcode as a way to implement it within the silicon almost in software but was it software or is it does it require actual and and or gates um yes exactly and and i liked 
I like John's question. I thought it was a really good one because he's saying, well, okay, all you've really done is move the complexity right. from one place to somewhere else. Why is it, but you know, how, why is it any less complex? There's two, two things that, that microcode does. The first is that as I described it, the microcode which is used to implement instructions, is generally a long word that is, it's many, many bits wide. And the, the bits are, are turned on and off in order to open and close paths through the system in order to implement the instruction. So you, you're, so you route some bits of the instruction word to the adder, and then you route some, like, like the... Um, a memory fetch results to the adder and those get added and then they go into a buffer. And so, so one of the real powers of, um, of using a ROM, a read-only memory, is as a lookup table. If you, if you imagine a, if you imagine a, a matrix, a two-dimensional grid where you have a bunch of inputs on one side, that is like on the horizontal, and a bunch of outputs on the vertical. And this grid is filled with a collection of ones and zeros at the intersections, such that when you when you select one of these addresses, some number of bits change on the output. What a what a ROM does allows you to have an arbitrary association between the inputs and the outputs. And if you were to implement that same arbitrary association in discrete logic, you'd just pull your hair out trying to, to with, with standard ands and ors and nans and nors, inverters and all that, trying to, to wire up what you can do so easily with a simple table. So the first part of this is that a, a table lookup, as it's called, can, can beautifully, with almost no components, just like a little ROM, can allow you to map an arbitrary, of, an arbitrary combination of inputs into a different combination of outputs. So that's a huge simplifying thing, which is one of the things that microcode is, is a, is a table. And the second part is that by doing a big job in, in steps, you don't have to do it all at once. So microcode implies multiple steps to, to achieve some end. So without this notion of multiple steps, all the instructions you had, no matter how complex they were, we're just going to have to happen, bang, just in a single cycle. I mean, it would be like an amazing amount of work somehow almost magically being done, bang, all at once. And instead, if you've got microcycles, then you're able to break up a complex job into many smaller steps, each of which is more simple. So that's the second way that you get simplicity is by 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 sort of factoring the all the kinds of things the computer might do into 
simpler, smaller steps, and then allowing yourself multiple steps to achieve a bigger result. Um, And as a consequence, the savings are dramatic, such that um, virtually all systems today uh, use microcode in order to get the job done. All right. Are you ready for another question, my friend? Yeah. Or an observation in this case. In this case, from Simon in Canada with a security data point from a hospital operating room. Hi, Steve. This week, my five-year-old daughter underwent a relatively minor surgical procedure, but still one that required full anesthetic. Oh, that's always scary. Standard operating procedure, literally, in this case, dictates that when possible, one of the parents attend until the point the child's unconscious which is why I found myself standing in an OR of a well-known children's hospital clad in a surgical gown, mask, and paper booties. After the anesthesiologist had done his stuff and my little angel was peacefully sleeping, I had time to take in a little more of my surroundings. It was then I noticed, oh dear, (laughs) that the rest of the nurses and docs who currently had nothing to do were watching a World Cup game streaming live on one of the operating room computers via... A flash player. Now, I obviously have no idea whether this PC was segmented for the more critical systems in the OR, but I do know that the screen immediately next to it was displaying the medical imaging. I also know that A, there is at least one computer with an internet connection in that operating room, and B, it's got flash installed, one of the most fertile attack vectors for recent malware. Just an interesting observation I thought you might be interested in sharing with your listeners and viewers. Thank you, Steve and Leo, for your great work. Wow! Yeah, you know, not surprising. Unfortunately, I don't know. I don't know what it will take to for the word to get out that this kind of thing is uh, is a problem. I mean, we had remember UK hospitals that were almost shut down by Conficker getting into their networks, into their operating rooms, computers, just amazing, and and causing problems. Yeah. So. You know, you just got to shake your head. I mean, there's nothing we can do about it, but it's worth just sort of being aware of it. Question for James Truesdale in St. Louis, Missouri, had a risky question. Listening to the podcast, heard your explanation of how instruction sets grew due to programmer requests for more complex instructions to make their life easier. I had this thought. Instead of adding instructions, why not just use macros? <laughs> you mean do more work? For, for commonly used operations. Well, you just answered the question, Leo. <laughs> you mean work harder? No. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the The idea was that that back then, memory was very expensive. And so it really wasn't the program. I mean, the programmers wanted more powerful instructions rather than using less power, rather, rather than using more less powerful instructions. Right. So, for example, in the case of, for example, the VAX that has a linked list instruction, which is like doing all this amazing pointer moving around, they, programmers were able already to manually manage linked lists, and they could have certainly hidden all of the instructions that they were using underneath the macro. Of course, that would have been dangerous because it's very easy to forget how much work a macro is doing because specifically because it's hiding all of the, the the work it's doing from you it's convenient from a programming standpoint but 
The problem is it would be expensive in terms of time and also the memory that it would that it would that it would take up. So the back then, different from now, where you might say, "Hey, wait a minute," you know, risk approaches are much more, you know, um, many small simple instructions than CISC machines were back then. Back then, memory was expensive and slow. So. What the programmers were saying was, hey, we're, we're expending all these instructions to manipulate pointers in a way that would be really convenient if we just had an instruction that could do it for us. Then we'd save all of this expensive memory and all the time it takes to fetch from this expensive memory. So, um, so you know, macro doesn't do the job that that implementing complex instructions in microcode does. Yeah, I think we kind of touched on that last week, but just it's worth reiterating. It isn't laziness. It's it's a, a response really to scant resources, as, right. as a lot of this stuff is. And as resources change, you change what you do. That's why we don't need risk so much anymore. I love this one. For question five from Haystacks Calhoun in New York City. He wonders about Google Search's SSL beta. Is it true that the new secure search, we talked about this on Twig, and I think we talked about it on Security Now. Now they allow HTTPS uh, when you do a search. Is not immediately secure if used at some places. For example, at work, because they have, quote, a web cache doing a man-in-the-middle attack on those searches, end quote. Apparently, an examination of the certificate shows it's from the web proxy and not from Google. I'm told this is less secure as it will show in the web proxy history. Can you confirm or explain the reality of this? Thanks. We did kind of talk about this, too. Well, I thought this was worth mentioning, though, because I could see how people could assume that simply using HTTPS to search Google would immediately protect them from anyone knowing what they're searching for. That is, would would protect them from someone, for example, otherwise being able to look at their search queries. And so we certainly, we, we've talked about this issue of SSL interception using a, a, a proxy whose, whose certificate has been installed on your browser, much as is sometimes now and increasingly being done in the workplace so that, so that corporations are able to apply the, the behavior filtering that they want to to prevent people, for example, from going to social networking sites during the day while they're at work. We don't wait till you get home to do that. Or in order for the antiviral software to be able to perform its antiviral checking of even content that comes in over SSL. As a consequence, proxies are able now increasingly to peek into those connections. Well, that does mean as... Haystacks has apparently heard people saying that that it is it is not automatically the case that 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 your your Google searches cannot be eavesdropped on by corporate management just because you're using secure searches. That if the technology is there, as would be revealed, as he says, by looking at, at the SSL certificate from a, a connection to Google. You know, is it Google's certificate or the proxy's certificate that you see? If it's if it's not Google's, then you've actually connected to something other than Google between 
here and Google, which has done so for the specific purpose of getting into your connection and seeing what's going on. Uh, question. Let's see. That was question five. You know, what, let's take a break and get to question six. Jeff wants to recover the keys to his kingdom, and we'll do that uh, in just a second. But first, I want to tell you how to save the keys to your kingdom. We've talked before about Carbonite, the great backup solution uh, that consumers use. It's automatic in the cloud backup using AES 256-bit encryption, so you're safe. SSL. So even if you don't encrypt, you're safe. You can, And that's important because uh, Carbonite, for instance, on a laptop will back up whenever it's uh, at an open access spot. It'll say, oh, I have connection. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, continue my backups. And so that's why it uses SSL. Make sure that you're not in any way exposed. I recommend using the AES, especially for people who are listening to this show, and have it encrypted. You keep the password so no one has access to it except you do. It's always going on, you know, except, you know, when your machine's idle. When you're using it, of course, it, it slows down. They have very good software so that they are absolutely not using resources you need. But there's a lot of idle time on your computer when it can be backing up. And that's the beauty of it. You never don't have a good backup. Well, now for business, there's Carbonite Pro. Same great Carbonite backup for your small business. That means a central dashboard. So as many users as you have, you, you can always know, are they backed up? Are they safe? Um, it also uh, allows you to um, restore individual users if you, if, you, if you turn this permission on, which I think is a good thing because it's kind of embarrassing to have to ask for a restore from the IT department. CarbonitePro.com. If you go there right now, you can get 30 days free. Join the 100,000 business users who are already using Carbonite for their backups. Take a look at the pricing, too. It, it, as I said, free for 30 days, but very much more affordable than if you try to use, as many do, the consumer carbonite. Up to 20 gigabytes, just $10 a month. $10 a month for 20 gigabytes backup. And it goes up from there. As many seats as you need, centralized uh, administration and more. 30 days free, though, so you could try it in your business. CarbonitePro.com. I'll give you a good example. Let's say you have 18 seats, 18 computers, 5 gigs each. There's no charge per computer. The total cost for you for 5 gigabytes, 18 computers, just $50 a month. That is a great deal. CarbonitePro.com. Try it free today. You're going to love it. Question 6 from Jeff Dunn in Riley Township, Michigan. He's worried about recovering the keys to the kingdom. He says, I have a what-if question, Steve, on TPM, the Trusted Platform Module, and whole drive encryption, assuming the keys are stored in the TPM. How do you recover the data? Not, not, not you know, spin-write style, which is, of course, below the file system, but at the file system, if the TPM or the motherboard fails, is there any way to get the data back? That is a great question, something we've never talked about before. So the Trusted Platform Module... Uh, we have covered in the past, is a secure means of, of storing cryptographic keys, which is mounted physically on the motherboard, so it's not easily removed. The question being, what, what would you do if, for example, um, something like TrueCrypt was relying on the trusted platform module to obtain its keys, which is a good way for something like TrueCrypt to operate 
because you would have to authenticate to the trusted platform module before it would release that information. The problem is, what happens if it dies? Motherboards die, you know, random chips die, lightning strikes machines, blows them out. The answer is that in every case that I've seen, there is a means for backing up the data that's contained in the TPM. And you absolutely absolutely want to do that. So you could argue, wait a minute, if I'm backing up the data in the TPM, then that's not secure. And that's true. Basically, you're saying, give me a copy of what's in the trusted platform module so that I can have that offline. And that's the key that again it it's a it's one of these security security balancing things you you need the data in the tpm to be online to and to sort of be on the front line where it's protecting the data from any other activity viruses malware you know or just misuse um you know whether deliberate or not but but it also makes sense to have a a secure backup copy where you stick it on a thumb drive, for example, and you put it in a safety deposit box. You, you, so you're responsible, and it's important that 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 backup be secured. But it it's offline, and it doesn't. And and, and the, the you're you're talking then about physical security rather than protocol, you know, data security like the TPM is. So may, for sure, make a backup copy of the data in the TPM onto a thumb drive, onto a CD, wh- wh- you know, wherever, and then and then physically secure that somewhere so that if the worst happened, you would be able to reload this data um, and still get access to your um, to your uh, protected content. Very important. Yeah, that's good to know. And same thing with the security certificates used by. BitLocker on Windows. You can back up that certificate, but if you don't, you're done. So back it up. Yes. <laughs> well, and fr- and frankly, any any web master who's used SSL has gone through the same thing. You know, I've got I have my server's private keys are necessarily stored on the server. That's what it uses to negotiate its side of the SSL of the SSL handshake and connection. Yet it's crucial that I protect those from bad guys because I don't want them getting my server's private key or that would allow them to spoof SSL connections. And that's true, you know, any site which has, is offering secure connections, there is, there is confidential data. There is, you know, very private data in the form of the server's, private keys which the webmaster is responsible for safeguarding and you know so i've got those written carefully and locked up physically in an off-site location so that i I always have them if i need them but so that they can't get loose inadvertently michael in denmark with a question he wanted a sanity check on soliciting malicious traffic Stephen leo just a quick one here regarding stealth ports i just changed internet service providers got a new router my new router is kind of locked to the uh, ISP's configuration, only has very limited capabilities, no firewall. 
but nonetheless, basic port forwarding capabilities. I use port forwarding for a couple of services. I want the rest of my ports to be stealthed. I found I could achieve this by setting the DMZ forwarding IP to an IP in my range that is not used. Oh, that's interesting. My question is, however, is there any risk connected with this? The router will now allow traffic to flow to my internal net, but there's nobody at that IP address, so there shouldn't be any danger, right? I mean, could some sort of malicious traffic enter my network and do mischief? I don't see how, but I thought I'd better ask you just to be on the safe side. That's a clever hack. Well, now, okay, some listeners who are familiar with port forwarding are rolling their eyes at this point, saying, wait a minute, this is dumb. Um, Everyone knows... You can use a DMZ to forward to a non-existent IP. Okay, um, it it has been done before. The reason I chose this question was that the data doesn't does not appear on your network, and it's not even aimed at a non-existent IP. And I thought that was significant because remember that the way Ethernet works, when your router receives a packet. From the outside, bound for any IP, it looks in its ARP table, the Address Resolution Protocol table, to find out which MAC address on the network has been associated with that IP. So if something comes in to an IP address that doesn't exist, the router will make an ARP broadcast saying... Hey, I've got an, a packet here for, you know, IP address 192.168.0.111. Uh, who has that? Mm. There'll be no response because no machine on your LAN will have that IP. So the router cannot put that potentially malicious traffic on your LAN. It has nowhere to send it to. So it'll make that broadcast when something bogus comes in to your uh, DMZ port, which you've deliberately set to a non-existent IP. The router makes the ARP broadcast, says, who's got this? Nobody answers, and the router throws it away. So it's a great thing to do. Clever. So Because it not only means that your router won't respond on to any of that traffic, but your your LAN is completely safe. None of that traffic can enter the LAN because there's nowhere for it to go. The router's trying to send it to someone. Nobody's saying, hey, me, I've got that IP. So the router has no choice but to discard it. Clever. Very cool. We're going to do one more because we're running out of time, but I think yep. this is a, an appropriate uh, one because... Starbucks is adding free Wi-Fi on July 1st. William D. Elliott in Dallas, Texas, wants a Wi-Fi best practices reminder. Longtime listener Steve, with his new free Wi-Fi in all Starbucks stores. I mean, that's going to be the largest rollout of free Wi-Fi in the world. I mean, it's thousands of stores. Could you briefly review the basics or best practices for those of us who want to use our laptops in Starbucks? We can't bring a router into Starbucks to protect us. So what do you recommend people do? Well, actually, you can bring a router into Starbucks. Um, Do you? um, No, but Mark Thompson does. (laughs) Of course he does. Um, There there are some travel routers, which are are little Wi-Fi access points Mm -hmm. that you're able to plug yourself into. So 
but that doesn't solve the problem. Because, and we need to discuss what the problem is very quickly. That gives you a uh, firewall, but doesn't encrypt your traffic. Exactly that. Exactly, Leo. So the idea would be that it would give you a firewall, as, as any router does, that would prevent people on the LAN from having access to your computer. But all computers now have a firewall running by default. Mm. All Macs, all Linux machines, all Windows machines have have a firewall as part of their operation and it's a firewall blocking unsolicited incoming traffic. So while I still think it's nice in a home scenario to have a firewall, certainly belts are still useful even if you've got suspenders. Right. Um, in a wireless setting, you'd still have unencrypted traffic between that little router and the the location's uh, hotspot. So while it is possible to have a router, it doesn't help you. So, again, the, the, the thing to remember is that all of the traffic which you transact with your machine can be seen by anyone. We know there are people increasingly that are sniffing wireless traffic. And unfortunately, as things like this happens, as, as you know, free Wi-Fi becomes more prevalent, um, and as there is generally greater value in the data which is going to be sniffed, it tends to encourage this behavior. Also, there are wider spread sniffing tools which, which make it easier to capture this kind of traffic and even parse it for you so that it says, oh, look, here's a web session. Would you like to see the web page? I mean, there are, there are tools out there that will reconstruct the, from the streams of packets everything that's going on in these locations. And they're unfortunately easy to use and becoming more widespread. So, so you just have to remember in all of these situations that the fact that it's free and open also means that anyone has access to it. Only SSL protects you. Only secure connections protect you. So it's very often the case that, that email to, for example, POP and IMAP servers may not be encrypted. So the not only is your is your logon credentials available, but very often the actual data, you know, that you're sending and receiving in email is available. If you're using web-based mail, make sure that it's secure. And um, if you're able to do things um, with websites that accept an HTTPS, it's worth trying to put that in there. In general. I think it's best to just be afraid. I mean, <laughs> that's true. It really is. Just be afraid. Be just be afraid. afraid. <laughs> that's the best advice I have for you is, you know, use it if you have to. Right. Try not to. And right. if you are using it, be afraid. Uh, or, you know, if you use something like a go to my PC to get to a secure computer, that's essential. That uses SSL. That would essentially be secure. Um, I, I suppose, I don't know, I don't have experience with other ones, but something like LogMeIn probably uses SSL if it doesn't. Yes, and, and, and it's a very good point. Any VPN solution, we know that I'm working on one, CryptoLink. Right. If you have access to OpenVPN or Hotspot VPN, any, any kind of a VPN solution is also great protection because it will wrap your computer and all of its traffic in that tunnel and get it out of the danger area before it unwraps it and decrypts it. 
So, so that's if that's also makes a lot of sense. Steve Gibson, as always, a wonderful show. We have two questions we didn't get to, but will you save those for next time? I'm going to. Good. Yes. Uh, if you if you wish to uh, to uh, send Steve a question or a comment or suggestions, grc.com slash feedback. While you're there, take a look at Security Now, of course, the podcast, 16 kilobit versions available of every show, 253 episodes now. Uh, transcripts as well. Thanks to Steve, who foots the bill for that. We really appreciate it. Uh, and, you know, tip him. Buy a copy of Security of uh, Spinrite. <laughs> it's there also. The world's best. It's, that's a good tip because you get to keep it. The world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. He also has a lot of freebies there at grc.com. You can watch us do this show. We do it uh, if I don't install an operating system update uh, at ten, uh, sorry, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time. Uh, that's 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv every Wednesday afternoon. Please stop by and watch live or subscribe at twit.tv slash sn. We have subscription links to audio and video now. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next week. See you next week, Leo. Thanks. Security Now. Security Now.